Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Kathleen Cullen, a professor of physiology and the director of the Systems Neuroscience and Aerospace Medical Research Unit at McGill. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Cullen. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. So could you talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you decided you, you wanted to become a scientist? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually grew up in the United States. Uh, I did high school in the, the Boston area, and I was one of four daughters. I was the oldest of four daughters, and um, I always like to describe myself as my father's only son. He was an, an engineer, and I used to enjoy doing things like building Heath Kit TVs and you know sort of you know, geeky pastimes with my dad. So it was actually a very gender neutral household I grew up in that way because there were no preconceived notions about what boys and girls did in my house, which was great, I think, really. So um, there was nothing strange about wanting to be a scientist. And I really loved science, you know, all through high school. I really, really enjoyed all things science. So. When I went off to university, it was pretty clear that I wanted to major in science. And of course, when you're in high school, it's hard to have a sense really what's out there. So I, I enjoyed physics and chemistry. So my dad was an engineer. So initially, I thought maybe, well, chemical engineering. And I did my undergrad at Brown, I should note. So the nice thing about going to a place like Brown is they have pretty flexible curriculum. So you can go in deciding you want to do one thing. And by the end of the time you're there, change. And I really took advantage of that. So I moved from like, chemical engineering to electrical engineering and then ultimately to neuroscience while I was at Brown. So I pretty much completed the coursework in electrical engineering, but did a lot of my electives and increasingly so in the sort of developing field of neuroscience. And Brown was one of the, I think, one of the first places really to have a real neuroscience program. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've benefited from that. So, you know, people like Mike Paradiso and Mark Baer were postdocs at the time, and it was pretty exciting to be there at, at that particular time. So it was, it was a great environment. Was that a common thing to do at the time at Brown to be going back and forth between the engineering department and the neuroscience department? It seems sort of commonplace nowadays. People weren't training as neuroscientists at that time, right? So people were coming into neuroscience with backgrounds in maybe computer science for you know, people who were interested in machine vision and then might get interested in uh, the brain as a, as a machine. You know, I guess we had pretty naive ideas initially, right, about how we would learn based on you know, algorithms that worked for particular applications that we could then maybe find correlates for those in the brain. I think the philosophy has changed a bit. Now we learn from looking at the brain and apply these, these methods in our models. But it was sort of the other way around at that time. So you had a lot of people who come from you know, computer science or engineering backgrounds and, and then take their tools, right, and use them in neuroscience. Yeah. I took some electives in neuroscience just by interest and, in, you know, because action potentials use electrical charge. It seemed like a nice way to take advantage of some things I learned in electrical engineering and apply them to a much more interesting problem than maybe, you know, working for GE and designing a, you know, a dryer door or something like that, which seemed like some of my friends who graduated with engineering degrees and stayed in the field we're doing. So it was... An opportunity then one day when I went to have my form signed for what my major was going to be and I'd been kind of putting this off I went over and there was this this major called bioelectrical engineering which looked like maybe all my courses would fit into that I met a guy named Jerry Daniels who was running a lab that was recording from visual cortex and in, in, uh, anesthetized cats it was pretty exciting because he looked at the courses I'd take you know on my own I had a, an advisor but I never really went and saw this person because they were really an engineer and he said wow, did you sort all this stuff out yourself? You, I said, yeah, it just looked interesting. He said, oh, do you want a job? I said, okay. 
sort of the rest is history. It's one of these moments of serendipity where you end up with a great match. The next day was a whole new world. And the lab is really a wonderful place for an undergraduate. We were doing neurophysiology and recording from V1, and we were looking at visual plasticity of visual cortex. Uh, Leon Cooper, who had won a Nobel Prize in Physics, was part of the neuroscience group. He decided after he won this Nobel Prize, he wanted to do something really interesting and uh, went into neuroscience. So it was really, really an exciting time. And we we're also building our own circuits. Jerry Daniels ran the digital design course, so we were building our own circuits to do things like monitor heart rate and blood pressure. And So it was a great training environment and really gave me the flexibility to kind of figure out what it was I had a passion for. So that's the short answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> so you've in large part focused your entire career from your grad work to postdoc and now your own lab's work on various aspects of the ocular motor system and particularly on its integration with the vestibular system. Can you recall the moment in your training that you were introduced to the system and what about it captured your curiosity so much? Yeah, so I've always been interested philosophically in movement and how do you move and how does the brain initiate movement. It's just one of, the, I think, one of these fundamental questions of how do you say, I'm going to reach for a cup of coffee and, and do that. That's always been just a fascinating problem to me. And I guess in part, through my training around, I took a course, neurophysiology slash engineering course, given by the same person, Jerry Daniels, whose lab I was in. And it focused on eye movements um, because at the time, uh, people like David Robinson, Ed Hopkins, and uh, Robert Fuchs at Seattle were starting to you know, go into the brain and record from neurons and use linear systems analyses and these sort of analyses we were using in our you know, filter design courses to try to understand how the brain worked. And it actually looked phenomenally promising in this particular system. Dave Robinson did things like measure real neuronal signals and pathways that we had pretty good sense of the precise wiring of and made predictions and then found other parts of the circuit that he predicted would be there. So it's one of these times where models really did drive experiments and actually were often validated. So I just found that all incredibly exciting and it was an opportunity again to use the quantitative tools which I enjoyed learning and using uh, for something that I just thought was one of the ultimate questions. So that's in part why I like the ocular motor and vestibular systems. They're great model systems, you know, there's sensory motor transformations and the vestibular ocular reflex, for example, one of the fastest things we do. If you rotate your head in space and you activate your vestibular system, your eyes move within five milliseconds. So it's really, really fast. And we know that the circuitry that produces this reflex and the vestibular afferents and the eighth nerve projecting the vestibular nuclei. And the vestibular nuclei are both pre-primary sensory, the first central sensory neuron, but also pre-motor because they project directly to the motor neurons that move your eye. So it really gives you a very clear circuit where you can look at how a sensory transformation is done. So I think, you know, just that ability to really hold on to something that clean was exciting to me. So as you just described it, the vestibular ocular reflex is described as a reflex, and you just described the circuitry that leads from the vestibular system directly to the motor neurons that control the movement of the eyes. But in your graduate work, you showed that monkeys were actually able to voluntarily suppress this reflex. So how did you show that monkeys were able to do this? And is this as surprising as it sounds naively that this reflex pathway could just get shut down? Right. So we all want simple computations, typically. You know, the simpler, the better. So the question is, how do these ocular motor systems interface, right? So if you look at a standard chart of how many different eye movement systems there are, we have usually people will describe three voluntary eye movement systems. So you have pursuit, saccades, and maybe virgins, right? Mm -hmm. And then two 
reflexive eyewitness systems that are used to stabilize gaze. So that'd be the vestibular ocular reflex and optokinetic reflex, because you can also have full field visual input, right? And you you can use that to keep your, your gaze. Your eyes track the, the light poles as you're riding on the train or whatnot. Right. And it's part of the appeal. So part of what drew me in was the simplicity and the sort of the cleanness of these pathways. But then ultimately what you start to do is realize that it's more complicated. In fact, some of the complication is really interesting. So when people write about these systems, it's as if they're all independent subsystems, right, that work together, but each is separate. And when you look at the anatomy, it's more complicated than that. So I started to appreciate that. And what became clear is that perhaps it wouldn't always be a good idea to have a VOR just running sort of default, which maybe seems sort of obvious now. So again, the goal of the VOR, the spelicular reflex, is if you move your head, your eyes move in the opposite direction, so your visual world's stable. And it's hard for us to appreciate how important that is to us every day until we have some sort of vestibular injury and, uh, you know, then you have gaze instability and just walking down the street is very uncomfortable because the world's moving around on your retina. But you could think there are times where you don't want a VOR. Um, so, you know, if I'm looking from one side of my room to the other and I'm moving my head to do that, because normally we move our eyes and head together, actually the VOR would be driving my eyes in the opposite direction right. from my intended direction of gaze. So the work I did in my PhD was we weren't recording from animals that were actively moving their heads yet, but what we could do is come up with a behavioral context in which the monkey's goal, behavioral goal, was to actually cancel its VOR and it would get more juice or, you know, whatever its reward was for doing that. And by applying short latency stimuli, we could see if, in fact, we could dissociate whether the suppression was done by visual pathways, which take a long time, so we know that visual pathways would take about 90 milliseconds to generate the kind of smooth movement we would need to cancel the VOR, or if it could occur more quickly. And we found that it occurred actually much more quickly, so uh, on the order of 30 milliseconds, which was the best we could measure given the dynamics of the input we're using. It could be faster, but 30 milliseconds would be the conservative estimate versus 90 milliseconds. Yeah. So the idea is you have these contextual states where you know you can actually have gain changes that are specific to those those states. And we know for longer term VOR gain changes, like we, you know, if you're wearing glasses, for example, your VOR gain has to be adjusted to compensate for the, the lenses that you're wearing. But I'm starting to wear progressives now. So if I wear progressives, I need different VOR gains at different vertical eye positions. And you need to be able to switch them rapidly in a... Right. Yeah. And apparently the brain just does this. So it's pretty impressive. So, uh, you know, people have looked at this in monkey as well as just in sort of in people, but... The fact is that your VOR learns things like, well, if, you're, you know, if your eye is centered vertically, you need one gain versus up versus down. So we've now learned a lot more about how plastic it is and actually how sophisticated it can be with respect to the, these contextual cues. So you did then go look in the brain to see what you could find out about how this suppression gets implemented. What did you learn? We went in and looked at neurons in the vestibular nuclei. So we looked at basically that neuron that's the middle of the three-neuron arc that both has afferent input and motor output to the extraocular motor neurons and found that those neurons show suppression that mirrored the time course of what we saw in the behavior. So you see really fast suppression of their vestibular input. Uh, so again, they're getting direct afferent input and we know that the afferents are carrying that signal. So what it suggests is that there is some internal model, if you will, or some you know, something that lets the monkey know how this is occurring. I mean, this is kind of the direction that my work has gone 
sense. So we, I actually never found the source of that suppression signal. Uh, we also found another group of cells that are carrying the visual suppression signal. So it's basically a combination of both this contextual cue and then a longer latency input in the pursuit system. Okay, so you kind of left it there and went on to do a postdoc in Daniel Guiton's lab. And there you were studying, again, how the brain directs eye movements in response to shift and gaze. And one experiment you did there, which I thought was pretty interesting, was you forced monkeys to change the way they coordinated their head and eye movements, essentially by making them look out at the world through a tiny porthole in some otherwise opaque glasses. Can you explain why you were doing this and, and what you found? Yeah, well, the, the goal in that experiment was just to try to sort of dissociate eye and head movements. So what I'd done in my PhD experiment was the animal never actually actively moved its head. So it was kind of a non-natural condition we were looking at. So one of the reasons I went to Montreal was one of the few labs in the world that was actually recording from, you know, alert behaving animals that particular monkeys that were able to voluntarily move their head. So that was all very exciting because I had the opportunity to look at both naturally generated vestibular inputs, which people weren't doing, as well as, um, you know, combined eye-head orienting movements, which was a different kind of motor output, right, than most people were looking at and much more natural. But one of the issues is when you make a combined eye-head movement, the eye and head movements are pretty much correlated. So what we ended up doing, I have to say, some of those experiments weren't done by me, but were done by Doug Crawford, who was also a postdoc mm. at the time. By using approaches like that, we could actually dissociate the eye and head movements more and try to understand what the neurons were encoding. Were they encoding gaze in space? Were they encoding eye and head? Were they encoding head on body? And it gave us a way of trying to dissociate those different trajectories. And what we found is that neurons are generally going to gaze in space, uh, which at the time was a big argument because, again, people wanted separate subsystems. And there was a, a contingent of uh, my colleagues who believed that there was a particular pathway that was generating this psychotic command and that the VOR and these other things were sort of running sort of in parallel, but not in an interactive way. So the distinction here, just to clarify is whether or not the the signal encodes the absolute angle that the eye is looking like relative to you know where the body is straight ahead or whether or not it's encoding the position of the eye within the head so if, if i keep the eyes straight forward and i move the head 45 degrees to the right then one system would show 45 degrees and the other would still show zero because my eyes are still pointed straight ahead right even okay. though they've moved in the orbits right so you've also published some, in your postdoc, some incredibly detailed papers which analyze how different signals such as saccade amplitude, eye velocity, head position, etc. are encoded in different <laughs> neurons in the brainstem. And maybe without going into incredible detail about all the things that you found, could you maybe frame for us what the larger questions are surrounding how these different signals are encoded and ultimately combined to move the eyes and where they should go? Yeah, the question is how do these separate subsystems, um, so you know, VOR and saccades and pursuit, ultimately work together so that your eyes end up looking at what you want to be looking at, right? So the vestibular ocular reflex is there to move your eyes in the opposite direction of your head. When you're making a saccade, that's pretty clear, but generally people hadn't studied saccades when the head was moving, right? So people generally study saccades with the eyes moving and the head fixed. But if you look at the way people actually generate orienting movements, it's rare that you don't move your head unless you're very shifty-eyed, right, to look between things. Actually, a very natural way to look around the world is make small head movements with your eyes, you know, moving um, in the same direction. Sometimes we even move our whole torso. So the idea is to really understand 
how, you know, in, you know, again, people have been drawing these little circuits, but they were each independent. So you had a VOR circuit and you had a saccade circuit. And the question is, how do they interact or do they interact? Uh, so people were trying to build models and I was one of these people. Um, and you could look at it from basically two points of view. You could look at how does the vestibular signal influence the saccade generator, right? Yeah. Which is sort of where my postdoc focused. Uh, so what we wanted to know was, do these head velocity signals end up in, you know, or head movement signals or head command signals end up in the saccade generator? So that's really what we were focused on in trying to use the systems identification techniques, which were sort of novel at the time, and people are using them, have used them since to look at cerebellar output and things like that, but to try to understand really what signals were encoded by these neurons. And what we found is they didn't just encode ion orbit signals, at least until you got to sort of the final common element, which would be the motor neuron itself. So the motor neurons that connect to the eye muscles, we found only encode eye movement related signals, which was a bit of a relief. Uh, <laughs> another group actually didn't get that same answer. And it's in part because they ignored the dynamics of uh, the actual movements. Because you have to build models that are based on sort of the mechanics of the ocular motor plant. And, and that's one of the sort of nice things about working on eye movements is you can do that. You, know, you right. can actually build right. a pretty reasonable model. The eyeball has six muscles. They work in pairs. We know a lot about how to model the mechanics of that particular you know, motor effector. Right. So if you wanted the eyes to just immediately start moving at a constant velocity to the right, you wouldn't expect that the motor neurons should immediately go from zero to some fixed firing rate, for example. It actually has to do something more complicated than that. Right, they have dynamics, and that's been well known since Dave Robinson's first experiments when he was at Hopkins in, I guess, the 60s. Um, he made some nice predictions that, again, ultimately, 10 years later, he went back and used single-unit recording to demonstrate the neurons actually generated the sort of command signals that he predicted based on the mechanics of the plant. So we worked with that logic just backwards through the circuit, and we're able to determine that, in fact, if you went to just the next stage of processing, things were not eye movement anymore. They were related to eye and head. And um, around the same time, we learned that if you stimulate the superior colliculus in monkeys, um, you don't just get eye movements, you get eye and head movements. Uh, in cats, you even can get pinna movements, so you get this full orienting response. So it means that basically the same circuitry is controlling both eye and head motion in a coordinated way. Yeah. And then some of the other work we did, particularly when I moved on to my, run my own lab, I had a sort of subset of uh, our research program that was devoted to trying to probe the feedback loops by which you can get both accurate eye and head movements so gazes on target, because as soon as you have two effectors, it becomes a sort of feedback problem of how do you know when you're on target. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you're also the director of the Aerospace Research Unit at McGill. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with aerospace research and the, the negative effects of, on a flight on the human body? So I was recruited into the Aerospace Medical Research Unit when I initially came to McGill. So I did my postdoc at McGill for two years in at the Montreal Neurological Institute. And I um, was very fortunate to do only a two-year postdoc. And then an opening came in the Aerospace Medical Research Unit, which was originally founded by Jeffrey Melville Jones, who did a lot of studies on the vestibular ocular reflex and basically how vestibular reflexes are altered or can be altered. And then at the time I joined, uh, Jeffrey Melville Jones was leaving, so I inherited his lab, and Doug Watt, who was working on uh, space motion sickness and did actually a lot of work with NASA and the Canadian Space Agency, was running the unit. So they wanted a basic researcher who looked at the neural mechanisms underlying 
vestibular plasticity and how vestibular pathways are adapted. It sounds like a perfect fit. <laughs> it was it was wonderful for me. I mean, I really was very lucky, uh, and it's been a great super environment for me. I really enjoy my colleagues and the, the way the department is here and sort of the links I have with people. So as far as my research, it's really, I'm a basic researcher and at the time I started working in, on these problems as a, as a new assistant professor, there was a lot of money given by NASA for basic research. So they were funding people in the U.S. as well. It's mm -hmm. less so the case now because, for example, if you go up into outer space, the vestibular system will perform differently. So you have two types of sensors. You have the semicircular canals that uh, detect rotations, and then you have the otoliths that detect linear acceleration. Gravity is a linear force, so they also detect gravity. So if you go up into outer space, you're experiencing a very different world, right, from your vestibular point of view than you would on Earth. And astronauts are usually quite sick. So there was a lot of emphasis on trying to understand vestibular pathways and their adaptation to maybe understand what to do about space sickness. Um, so that was one of the main concerns. So at the moment, astronauts end up being treated very much like people on Earth would be for um, motion sickness. So you, you might give them scopolamine, and that's more or less what's what, what is done for the astronauts. And they still, they will have the same sort of symptoms when they come back down to Earth, because going from zero G back down to one G is a pretty uh, massive insult to deal yeah. with for adaptation. So that's sort of how I ended up, I guess, in this department or in this unit. Uh, there's been interest. I work, uh, I was a consultant or on the external advisory board for NSVRI because there was a sensory motor group. Again, uh, trying to understand ways to train astronauts to have better performance in space. The space sickness is particularly bad in the first couple days and can be really, really debilitating and problematic for people if they're trying to operate, you know, important experiments or uh, do important things as far as just running the spacecraft. Time is valuable in space. Yeah, it's very valuable. And there are other things that are related to, you know, I guess ocular motor issues. You know, there's no up and down when you're in space. It becomes ambiguous, and people will get very disoriented and get these 180-degree perceptual flip. Uh -huh. Suddenly what was up was down. And that actually can be quite sort of viscerally upsetting. People have learned as far as just the visual environment in the shuttle or whatever crap people are on is to put uh, you know, some, something that gives people a sense of what, but up and down. Yeah, they, they just had to read Ender's Game and know that the enemy's gate is always down. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there are many other issues, of course, in space. So one of the things that was fascinating when I was at, going into NSVRI was the fact that you would have um, you know, people working, of course, on bone and cardiovascular issues. And there's a lot of bone loss, which most people, I think, are aware of. There also seem to be salt on the visual system. Um, so these are things that people are becoming more and more aware of as, I guess, more and more people have been up in space. They're much better now. You know, astronauts will exercise quite regularly when they're up in space to try to minimize those effects. Apparently, the big issue, uh, which was sort of, I guess, fascinating but kind of frightening, is, you know, if you want to do long space travel and go to Mars, for example, you have to deal with radiation. And that seems to be a hard one to solve. So yeah. there are other ideas currently, for example, creating artificial gravity in space by putting a big centrifuge up on a shuttle. Again, they're just reading Ender's Game and just stealing all their ideas, I guess. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Colleagues at MIT are working on that. So it's it's just been very interesting. And, you know, it's not, it's not my basic work, but I find it, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, finally, could you just give us a brief preview for what you plan to talk to us about at Stanford? Yeah, so I guess what I'll talk about at Stanford is I'm going to present, um, so I think the vestibular system is a, a wonderful model system. Again, you know, we have these two channels of input, and we're trying to better understand what they do. So I'll talk a bit about what we've learned recently about the pathways um, from a sensory coding point of view in the 
vestibular system and, and talk about the fact that the linear systems approaches that we, we've been using for years don't give us a full picture. And I think we have some exciting new findings with respect to just sensory coding problems. Uh, the work that my lab is the most famous for would be um, looking at how vestibular signals are processed during voluntary movements. So I talked a bit about looking at that from the ocular motor point of view, but what I've really been doing mostly in my lab lately is, I guess, focusing more on vestibular processing. And vestibular system does not just generate the vestibular ocular reflex. Um, it generates other important reflexes that are vestibular spinal and vestibular colic reflexes that are really important for us keeping our balance. And also is important, for, of course, for our sense of how we're moving through space. So I've been focusing more on the pathway that's not involved in the vestibular ocular reflex, but the path, central pathway that's involved in perception and balance, and looking at how information is coded when you actively move yourself through the world. So uh, what we found is the neurons that get after an input but are involved in balance, they don't encode active head motion. Their responses to active head movements are, are suppressed. So even though the afferents are encoding robust inputs, uh, as robust as during passive motion, you generate a movement yourself, this vestibular signal is suppressed, and it's suppressed at the first level of processing. So it's a pretty spectacular suppression. The suppression's not subtle, it's about 70% suppression overall. Some neurons are totally suppressed. So we've been sort of trying to solve the mystery of understanding how the suppression occurs since we know they're getting a big input from the afferents of the eighth nerve, right? Yeah. So we've started to record from the cerebellum, and I think we have really nice data showing that the cerebellum is basically computing uh, an expectation of what uh, the organism, in this case the monkey, expects as it moves through the world, and taking that expectation and comparing it to the actual sensory feedback that is, occurs because of that movement, that voluntary movement, and once you make that comparison, if you have a good match, you'll actually suppress the incoming uh, sensory inflow, vestibular inflow. And what we can do is actually perturb this model by asking the monkey to move his head voluntarily, but impeding it, right, or applying a load. So sort of a standard motor learning experiment. And we find that even though we put a load on the monkey's head, he tries to move his head. In that condition, actually, you don't see this reafferent suppression. So. We call this reafferent because it's an afferent input that's a result of what you've done yourself, yeah. as opposed to ex-afferents, which would be something that's externally applied. And I should note the other really beautiful thing that the system does is it can sort out what is applied by the experimenter versus what the monkey's done itself. So we can say rotate an animal uh, with our you know, servo motor and have the monkey generate his own head movement on top of that. And the neurons nicely draw out what the experimenters applied, but ignore what the monkey's done. Fascinating. It's a pretty simple computation that these, these neurons do. So we're trying to really understand how this is done. And I'll talk, talk a bit about what we've learned in the past and the current experiments we're doing looking for the source of this, which looks like it's in the cerebellum. Okay, so in closing, we'd like to ask a, a series of very uh, short answer questions. The first of which is, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a graduate student, and I mean you personally, what advice would you give yourself? Well, I think there's always a balance between doing your bread and butter science and getting what you need to do uh, just to get your next job or your next paper out, and then also doing things that would be more risky. And I think I would have probably told myself to take a few more risks early on. And um, I think, of course, keep the bread and butter, but to maybe not be quite as risk averse. Hmm. 
uh, so if I ask you to recall what your first experiment was, what, what jumps to mind, be it childhood, high school, college, whatever? First experiment. Hmm. Well, that one's hard. I think, you know, you're always doing experiments in life, right? So yeah. you're, you're experimenting with your parents to see <laughs> how far you can push. I see. Do you remember the first time you, you heard a spike? Oh, yes. No, I definitely remember that kind of experiment. I, I certainly remember being... Um, First real scientific experiment, I remember as an undergraduate at Brown, uh, walking into, you know, right after I spoke to this professor, I ended up working with walking into the lab right then and sitting down. So I remember that all very clearly. It was a very exciting time. So huh. uh, so the collection of the components of the inner ear, as you mentioned, is sometimes referred to as the labyrinth. And so when patients have to have their vestibular systems removed or ablated, it's called a labyrinthectomy, uh, which is one of right. my favorite medical words. What is your favorite <laughs> neuroscience-related word? Well, my daughter says it's vestibular. <laughs> bit of a cop-out, but yeah. every time she peers over my shoulder, she says, I see vestibular you know, 200 times on that page. So <laughs> It does roll off the tongue nicely. It does. And I guess the other word I like, the other thing I do occasionally is whenever I, well, all the time, whenever I try to write the word money, I write monkey. <laughs> so <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's funny sometimes, but not when you're, you know, actually trying to send something to the bank. So. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you could re redesign your own vestibular system, what changes would you make to it and why? Oh, I, I'll have to say I do think the vestibular system has been pretty well optimized. <laughs> That's a good answer, I think. <laughs> so thank you very much for speaking with us today, Dr. Cullen. Pleasure, and uh, I look forward to uh, meeting you next week. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. We'll be going on hiatus for the next few weeks, and we'll return on January 5th when our guest will be David Ginty, a professor of neuroscience at Harvard University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuroblog.stanford.edu.